0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 50, and it should also be on the screen. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud. And laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thank you, Sarah Catherine. Christ is alive. I think I need to have someone say that to me about every five minutes today. Uh, Probably every five minutes most days of the year, too. It's a truth that it was hard for the disciples to wrap their heads around, and it's even hard for us to wrap our heads around. We may know it in our heads. We may say, oh, yes, of course we believe that. But its impact to us goes, goes very deep, and it can go even deeper and can transform our lives in huge ways. On a much different but parallel note, uh, this Thursday, or maybe Wednesday night, or I don't know when they do this. They always do it earlier and earlier. Avengers Endgame is coming out. Now I know some of you have tickets already, I know some of you are, are planning to go, some of you might want to go and don't have tickets yet, but anyway, this movie has had a, a ton of hype, and uh, some are asking why so many grown-ups would be so excited about comics, right? Because comic books are for kids, right? Comic books are not for grown-ups, but yet so many adults love this series, and, and essentially Avengers Endgame, it's It's like the culmination of like 20, 23 movies over the course of 10 or 11 years, uh, being with Iron Man and Captain America, all of those, if you've never ever heard of those, and this is supposed to be the the culmination of it. Now, why in the world would would people be so excited about this one movie? Well, they're excited about the last one, and in the last movie, Infinity War, I'm I'm revealing a little bit of my nerdiness here, uh, half of the superheroes that exist in the world, all vanish. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Uh, The villain obtains the power. I mean, you see it coming, maybe, but he obtains the power to snap his fingers and half of the people in the world, including half the superheroes, dissolve. And that's how the movie ends. And so, of course, this is the ending to that, the sequel to that. And we all want to know, and this is why, one reason why I think we all want this. Yes, we all want to see evil lose and good triumph. We all want to see the good guys win in the end. We all want to have a sense that villains are going to be accountable, that they're going to be taken care of, that they just don't have free reign in the world. We all want to have that sense. But I think we also want to know, can those who are dead really come back to life? We all have that longing. We all have, even more so than, is my consciousness going to do something after my body uh, stops living? Like, can really the dead come back to life? And that idea is the reason it resonates so much with us. I mean, that's why we love those stories. And it's not just those stories, it's so many others as well. It's not just the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's Grimm's Fairy Tales. We want to know if, if those who are almost dead or basically dead, if they're going to come back to life, if they're going to win in the end. It's the same way, you know, 2,800 years ago with Homer when he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, that we want to know, is, the, is good going to triumph or is evil going to reign forever? Let me tell you, though, that this is no mere story. That whatever story you're into, whether it be... True crime stories, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, documentaries on the Civil War, World War II, uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, Game of Thrones, Jane Austen novels. There's even Good Triumphing Over Evil uh, and of Green Gables. Yes, even that. Like all the stories you could ever love. Let me tell you this though, that that the story of Jesus is documented history. That it's different. Because in the story of the resurrection, in what we just read this morning, Jesus of Nazareth is a historical figure. He said some things that no one has said like him before. He died an unfair death. And he literally came back to life after being dead. He didn't just pass out and wake back up. He was dead. He was documented as such. Thoroughly so. We'll dig into that in a moment. But he actually came back to life. You know, we want to know, can we live longer? Can we live forever? Modern science has been asking this and and trying to to figure this out. Modern science in the last hundred years, I've been told, has been able to prolong our life expectancy by about two years every decade. So about every two years, modern science figures out how to get us to live a little bit longer. Jim Gaffigan has a funny response to that. Jim Gaffigan is a comedian uh, who says, yeah, 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 you eat healthy, you work out, you make all these healthy choices because you want to live longer. But how much longer do you really want to live? <laughs> like, Put a number on that. Well, I'm going to sacrifice all... I mean, Jim Gaffigan is a fan of food. He's a fan of butter. He's a fan of uh, donuts and bread and more carbs. He... Anyway, he makes jokes about this all the time. But he's saying, how many more years do you really want to live? We are so afraid... Of death. And here Jesus rises from the grave and says, by faith, we can approach death without fear. And every person in this room, in 150 years, we'll all be gone. In 150 years, as Anne Lamont said, all new people. But for those who are in Jesus, there'll be one day a resurrection where we will literally, physically come back to life. Our bodies won't be the same way they are now. They'll be glorified. They'll be without disease, without, I don't know, imperfection. Whatever that looks like, we don't know. But what we really long for is given to us, is told to us, in the resurrection of Jesus. And so this is going to dramatically change, it can dramatically change how we live every day. It can change how we, how we are in our relationships, how we conduct ourselves in the marketplace, how we, uh, how we what, the things that we think about in our alone time. And so we're going to look at how, uh, look through this passage at some of those things, and we'll see that. So we're going to look at, at three basic points. One, the kingdom that we seek, the courage to speak, and the king who finds us. The kingdom we seek the courage to speak, and the king who finds us. So many at the time of Jesus' death, you might wonder, why did I read that last, why did I have Sarah Catherine read that last passage before uh, Easter Sunday morning, before the resurrection, to give context? Because they were looking for the kingdom. It says here that there's this man named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, He's from this town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council of the Sanhedrin. He was a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus, but he was looking for the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom that he was seeking. And just like everybody else at that time, even the disciples, even Jesus' closest disciples, even Peter, James, and John, they, they misunderstood the full magnitude of what Jesus, the kingdom that he was bringing. Because they all assumed they all assumed they lived in this world where, where, where military and political might drove the course of history. And if you had a big enough army, you were in control. And if your side had the bigger army, then you could live comfortably. You could live not persecuted, but you could live in control. And Joseph was looking for the kingdom, and he, that means he believed Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah King, this one who would come and finally turn Israel from the persecuted into those who would rule. And if you didn't know this, for, for hundreds of years, thousands really, there, there was uh, just one empire after another that ruled the known world. The Persians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the, the Greeks, the Romans, right? Uh, maybe not necessarily in that order, but the Romans were currently in control. And they were, Israel was allowed to kind of do their own thing, but they saw Roman soldiers every day. That they knew that they weren't really in control of their lives. Roman soldiers could do could ask them to carry their their armor, could would persecute them and push them around in all kinds of ways. That they knew they were hungering for the kingdom in so many ways. In similar ways, we we have the same ache uh, for our brothers and sisters in Chengdu who are in jail, who are imprisoned, who who are living under a regime, a government that is not that is actually actively. Seeking to persecute Christians. As long as, you know, they'll leave you alone as long as you're the kind of Christian that doesn't really believe the Bible. Uh, But as long as you believe what they want you to believe, that's okay. But uh, they are actively persecuting Christians, wanting relief. And they were very much in that way. Now, Joseph was seeking the kingdom. And so he thought Jesus' rise maybe would be a rise to earthly power. The disciples had been told that by Jesus that on the third day he would rise. Maybe they, I don't know, maybe they thought that meant that he would rise to power finally. They didn't understand. They had no concept, no file cabinet in their brain for Jesus dying and being dead and then coming back to life because none of us have that category, that file cabinet in our brain. Joseph was looking For the kingdom. And Joseph had a lot uh, in the kingdom that he was uh, willing to that, that that was going well for him. Right? He was a leader. In the Sanhedrin, he, the Sanhedrin would either be, it would range between 23 and 71 religious leaders in a local area. And they, they were the council, they were the tribunal, they were the officials who would decide uh, special cases. And they were the body that decided to crucify Jesus. But he was a conscientious objector, right? Uh, and he was in a stage of life where he had just cut for himself a tomb. He had just built for himself a tomb. It happened to be not that far from where Jesus died. Now, imagine the place where you would be in life when you have your own tomb built. You know, sometimes planning ahead is is helpful. It's nice to know where you're going to be when you die. For for some of us, we want to know that. Maybe you build a mausoleum. Maybe you you pick out your plot. Maybe you figure out what's going to be on your epitaph whatever stage of life you're going to be in, you kind of get the sense that Joseph was in a place where things were good. Things were comfortable. He was making plenty of money, enough to be able to afford that. He was thinking of, his, of not how high can I go, he was thinking of his legacy. He was thinking of, of you know, what, what are the next 10, 20 years going to be like, and what's, what's going to happen after I, after I die? And he's, he's thinking of all these things. He's not thinking risky investment, he's thinking conservative investment, right? And here he is, moved to surrender his tomb to the Messiah that he, the man he thought and for sure was going to be the Messiah. And maybe there's a part of him that thought, I don't know, anything can happen. But he surrendered his tomb to his hopes that had died. He was so invested in this. Now there's a lot of his own kingdom that he had been building. There's a lot that was going well for him, right? Right? He had no idea that the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing was actually better than anything we could hope for, achieve, or even dream of here on earth. It's like, uh, like Nicholas Cage in National Treasure. Like He goes through all around New England, right? And he finds a clue. He starts in, I don't know, Antarctica or somewhere. And he finds clue after clue after clue, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. He goes all over and finds what he is pretty sure is this massive treasure and then, at, towards the end, they find this treasure. And then they turn on the lights. Then they light all the lanterns. And they see that the treasure was far greater than they ever could have imagined. Do you remember that scene, if you've seen it? The, the, the room fills up a room three, four, or five times the size of this auditorium, filled with gold and, and treasure. The, the, the kingdom of God was a far greater treasure than anyone had imagined. But our, our tendency, though, kind of like Joseph, is to think that the kingdom is something we control, that we invest in, that we produce, that we build. And and there's a problem when we do that. It it keeps our focus low. It keeps our focus on ourselves. And by default, it keeps our focus away from God. Probably the the best contrast I've seen or heard of this is is on the Salem witch trials. Uh, my wife and I, were on vac- our family was on vacation recently, and we stumbled across a, a podcast that went into to detail. We like to do that. We have the, the kids, if they're sleeping or doing something in the back, we'll have you know, Megan and Paul time up front and listen to something different because Disney gets old after a while. Uh, and uh, So we're listening to a podcast on the Salem witch trials, and one thread that consistently weaves throughout the whole thing is fear of losing something the thing that fueled all these accusations, the thing that fueled all these uh, executions of people who were not witches, uh, was, uh, was this fear of losing something. And that something was Salem, was this city on a hill. There was Salem town and Salem village, but all of this was supposed to be this perfect place. This perfect place with only the perfect people. And they would even give someone, they gave someone a hard time for a uh, Puritan, uh, giving someone a hard time for adopting a Quaker baby. Oh, how, how dare they? That, that, that's, that's outside of what's perfect. You see how scary and dangerous that gets. And, and someone, some children were sick with something, who knows what was going on, but fear drove them to make accusation after accusation. And they used religion, not seeing what Jesus actually was teaching them, but they used the Bible, as others have too, to have power, all because of fear fear of losing something on earth that was never quite going to happen. Look, let's say Salem succeeded and let's say they had this perfect little city on a hill. Let's say that you and I have our perfect little family. Let's say we have a perfect career. Let's say that we can achieve a perfect whatever in our lives. It is never, never going to be as grand as the treasure of the kingdom that God has waiting for us. Never. And the thing is, if we hold on tight to that, if we hold on tight, rather, to the, the things that we feel we can do, other people get hurt. And, and, and we even uh, just become sadder people, fearful people, frightened people. But the resurrection of Jesus get, she reminds us that the kingdom promised to us is secure. That the kingdom is bigger than we thought. That, so what is the treasure that you are seeking? And what is, what is that thing that you feel like, if only I had this in my life, everything would be so much better. If only others would stop thinking this about me, but would start thinking this about me, my life would be so much better. Like all of those things, there's so many good things in our world that we can turn into self-resurrection projects that we can turn into into projects that we feel are going to lift us up out of the things that are causing us pain, the things we're struggling with. But the resurrection we really are looking for is given to us by the resurrection of Jesus. It's His resurrection, and by faith in Him, we will rise too. We, the kingdom that we're seeking has already been won and is better than anything we could long for. So this, I, this will change us and fuel us. Uh, there's the kingdom that we seek, and there's the courage to speak. The kingdom that we seek and then the courage to speak. Jose, uh, Joseph has the courage to do some pretty bold things. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, a member of the council, Uniquely, remember the Sanhedrin, uniquely had access, being such a high political, essentially like a senator, I suppose, had access to Pontius Pilate, who was in charge of Jesus' body. Much like with, with other executions, with other, other things like that, uh, the, the, the person who's being executed, the body is the property of the state. And, and sometimes, and there's some reports that, that those who are crucified would be, uh, would be married, buried in a bas- mass grave, would be buried along with many others in a very, very low key, nothing like a tomb. Uh, other reports would say that those who are crucified would just be left there, uh, exposed to the elements. And we often lose impact of of what a cross really is, and and maybe, you know, in hundreds of years ago, just a few hundred years ago, uh, we did this with pirates, and hanging pirates, and they'd be left to the elements as a warning to other pirates, you know, that you uh, watch yourself, or this would also happen to you. So, it was, first of all, unusual that anyone would ask for the body of someone who was crucified. I mean, first, that, that just didn't happen, but because jo- Joseph was such a high and such a high position, he had the access. And he went to Pilate and he asked. Now there's some things about Joseph that, uh, that, that interest us. Like first, we don't have any record that, that Joseph was uh, a professed follower of Jesus before this. Like we know that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And so, so he, as far as we know, he really would say, yeah, I believe in this Jesus guy. I think he's the one. But as far as we know, he hadn't done anything public about that. He may have been a conscientious objector to the execution of Jesus, but he wasn't, uh, as far as we know, he didn't stand up and, and try to stop it from happening either. But something made him step up. He risked a lot of what he built. He risked, he risked in doing so his social connections, his political statuses, maybe even his fortune. He risked, risked his legacy all for Jesus. And remember, at his stage in life, he's thinking long, he's thinking uh, conservative investments, not risky investments, right? He's thinking, I'm set. I want to keep it. I want to make sure things are okay. And instead, he's willing to surrender all of that. You don't do that, but something moves in him. Something stirs in him. This man, Joseph, who is hiding in his faith, uh, who who is uh, something moved in him to do this act of worship towards Jesus. You know, it's a lot like, you know, when I was a kid, I played with magnets a lot. I I don't know if if you ever did this as a kid. uh, Maybe you do this as a, you know, wherever you are in life. Uh, But magnets, if you get two that are exactly the same, Uh, I don't know everything about magnets, but I knew this, that there was like a positive side and a negative side, a, a positive end and a negative end. And the negative end and the positive end stuck together perfectly. But if you tried to put the positive ends together, it would like slide and it would you know, like slip, and it would, you could never get them perfectly. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, raise your hand if you have any idea. What I'm, okay, good. You try to put them together, and there's like this force. And you're like, how in the world? It's an incredible force. Like, What's going to happen if I actually succeed? Is this where black holes come from? I mean, this is pretty cool. And it would always slip. It would always miss. And there, there's something about faith in Jesus that is going to make you, propel you, to eventually part from the world at times. There are going to be times where you have to part from the world. And the only way that you're not going to feel that resistance is if you turn your back on God. And I think there might be some people in this room who are maybe who would say they believe in Jesus. They, they believe in God, but haven't really done anything to change their life about that yet. But maybe that's that's something you say, oh yeah, I, I totally believe in, in what's being said up here. I totally believe in Jesus, that he rose from the grave. But, but your life doesn't show that. Yet, and I'm not saying that that your life's going to be perfect, you know, overnight. No, 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 no. <laughs> it is following Jesus is a life of actually becoming more and more aware of how broken and messed up we are. Uh, every day, I find out how messed up I am to new levels. Uh, but it's 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 a it's a place where you have to you have to just there's something that's going to push you away. You're going to have to part. There are going to be some awkward conversations when people ask you about your faith, but pray and God will make the best of those. But I want to ask you, are you at a place, maybe, where you're just a conscientious objector, but quietly? Joseph had another friend with him. Uh, Luke's gospel doesn't mention it. Uh, Other gospels mention it. I forget which one. But Nicodemus was a friend of Joseph. Nicodemus was, it was a Pharisee who, uh, in John chapter 3, came to talk to Jesus. When did he talk to Jesus? He came at night, in the cover of darkness. He was sneaking. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus. But he still wanted to know about Jesus. He still wanted to ask Jesus some questions. He, he wanted to go further. And there's just a point where like, if you, maybe you're close. Maybe you're really close, and you feel that push. And, and I would say... Just take a step forward. Take a step forward and say, Jesus, I don't know what it looks like for me to follow you publicly. I don't know what it looks like for me to follow you with, with all my life and not just in my head, but would you lead me? I'm yours. And we'll, the, the kingdom that we seek will then by faith be yours. And Jesus works in us gradually, gradually the courage to speak. At times when it's important. For Joseph, by the way, it paid off. Jesus rose from the grave. He got his tomb back, but that wasn't the point. For Joseph, it did pay off. Joseph reminds me of so many in the Old Testament who who acted by faith without knowing that Jesus was really going to die and rise from the grave. Hebrews 11 talks about so many of them, I, I can't list them all we we'll go to Hebrews 11 and read them, and there's this part where it says, what well, these, these acted, these did so, did that what they did, not knowing fully what was going to happen. Not really knowing what was going to happen, but we know. We know that there was really a man named Jesus who really died. He really taught many of the things that he said. And not just Scripture uh, says this, but other outside historical uh, resources corroborate these accounts and then there are just, there are things, speaking of the courage to speak, things that you can't quite explain. That if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, the things that happen in history that wouldn't make sense. Things that would only happen if a king found us and grabbed a hold of our hearts. Because those are the kinds of things that, that make our lives change uh, in these ways. So let me go through those. So there's the kingdom that we seek, the courage to speak, and the king who finds us. So Jesus has risen. He found the disciples. Uh, it's interesting. Luke focuses on on different aspects of this of uh, the resurrection account. Like the other gospels, Jesus meets them like right outside the tomb. Uh, Luke decides to to skip that part, and he has you know that did still happen, but he focuses more on on how the disciples are wrestling with the resurrection. How how they were wrestling with this news. Like so there was Joseph who was wrestling with the death of Christ. And then there was there were the women who were following all the time. With Jesus at all times, ministering to him in many ways, Uh, and then the women who were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and Peter, who then was a later witness, uh, and John, and how all the disciples were wrestling with this. And then Luke, if if I would read it, I won't. But uh, the next passage after this, uh, we have two disciples who are walking uh, on a road to Emmaus, who are talking with who they think is a stranger. Turns out it's Jesus, and and they're struggling with what this means. Like, did Jesus really rise? What really happened? And the king gradually grabs their hearts, tells them, and reminds them of how all the Old Testament was pointing to this point where Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, would die and rise again, and they begin to understand. And he he leaves them, and and they say, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was explaining this to us? And then he visits them as a whole uh, later. But the resurrection changes us. As we think about it, it burns. It ought to burn within our hearts. And I think because, so much because, again, we want to know, we're dying to know, is there life after death? And the fact that Jesus is alive proves that there is. But Jesus, coming back to life, did some things for these disciples. All right, Uh, There's a man named George Weigel, and he writes about this Easter effect. He writes about... Uh, how the disciples behaved in ways that are entirely contrary to a cover-up. I mean, first, whenever there's a a huge movement and the leader of that movement dies, typically a family member replaces him or her. Typically someone else replaces them as the leader, as the king. With the disciples, no one replaced Jesus. Uh, Secondly, the disciples showed a huge track record of being scared and running and hiding that was their mo things are hard they run they scatter something made them come back together and not just come back together but share lives together and uh and and no longer were they afraid of hiding uh no longer were they afraid suddenly of standing up to the authorities, where once they were terrified of the authorities in fear. What in the world would make them associate with this executed criminal? Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else makes sense. If it were me and Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, I would want to hide. I would have deleted off my Facebook profile that I was associated with him. I would, I would change everything about my life that said I was associated with him so that I could have, have a clean start. And I would hope that no one would recognize me or bring it up. And that's where all the disciples were. But something changed that. Something changed that. It's because Jesus, the only explanation is that Jesus really did rise and really did appear to them really did eat in front of them, really did hang out with them, really did touch them, really did all those things. He spent some time with them and then eventually, if you don't know the story, ascended physically in bodily form to heaven where he is now and where he, from where he will return one day, we don't know when. And at that day, uh, ultimate justice will be done uh, and, and our, <laughs> our struggles will end when that happens. That these things happen, that George Weigel says with the Easter effect, uh, as well that um, that time and history changed, that that the way I thought about worship changed, that that there was new dignity given to women in sharp contrast to culture, new dignity even given to children in contrast to culture. Children back then were not seen as as just uh, as people; they were like less than people. And we know, and we try to treat everyone at King's Cross, the children at King's Cross, not like they're like half people, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they, are, they are equal with us. And so we love them and want to pour into them in that way. It, also, all the disciples that were martyred makes no sense why they would die for a lie. But the King transforms them. And the King transforms me too and can transform you. You know, what does it look like to have your heart captured by the king? What does it look like for the resurrection of Jesus to change you? Well, if you fully believe that, that your eternal destiny is not determined by how well you do things here on earth, but by how well Jesus did things, if your, your hope in all these things is not just to live longer, but you know that because Jesus rose again, you will live forever, that takes a ton of pressure off. A ton of pressure The the world will constantly tell us that you are what you do. You are how much you make. You are how good you look. You are. Your identity is centered on so many things that the world defines for you. And when we look to Jesus, though, he says, no, that's not true. That's an illusion. And the fact that I've risen from the dead proves that all that is just temporary. And that who you are is you are my child, you are beloved. You are. You are ultimately successful. Though we struggle, we are as counted legally as righteous as Jesus. Because while we know in the death of Jesus our sins were paid for, you know we. we let me say it again. I think I said this at the very beginning. Jesus at any point could have come down off the cross. At any point he could have called the angels he could have he could walk through walls he could do anything he wanted he could part waves he could walk on water he could do anything he wanted it wasn't the nails that kept him on the cross it was love love for you love for me but it wasn't it was compassion for you but it wasn't compassion by the father that caused Jesus to rise from the grave no it was justice because if justice were to be done then Jesus could not legally be held in the grave. And so we know not just that our sins are forgiven, but that there is now no legal claim that Satan has, that, that death has on us. That as the saying may go, I forget who first said this, that Satan knows our name, he knows us by name, and he calls us by our sins. That's his job, he's the accuser. He'll tell you all your faults. He'll tell you everything is wrong with you he'll remind you of them often he'll remind you of your mistakes and your and your your downright deception that you that you do and and all the hard things that you regret he'll also accuse you of other things but Jesus knows our sins and calls us by our name he knows our sins he calls you by name and this transforms how we live you know when There are all kinds of things that that press in on me, Uh, all kinds of things. When people disappoint me, uh, when probably the more more common one uh, is, you know, when Surprise, surprise. Uh, just like I was when I was a kid, uh, my children don't always want to obey me. They're not always like really eager to go clean their room. They're not eager. Like, oh, really? What can I do now, Father, that would be uh, honoring to you? Like, they have their own plan for what they're going to do in their life and their day, and then I interrupt that plan so much, and, and they let me know that I've interrupted their plan uh, for for their happiness. And even though my plan is is important, um, that's really frustrating as a parent to deal with that. Now, in one sense, when I get angry as a response, like the times that I lose my temper, and I do, the times that I lose my temper, ultimately, if I really check my heart, it's because I believe that my, parent, my children's obedience reflects on how good of a parent I am and how good of a person I am. See, I'm really upset that their, their behavior is impacting how I look. Now, I'm really concerned primarily about me in those times. I mean, it's the same thing. If if there's not necessarily any um, any sin going on, but like if I have a disagreement with somebody, it can be really high stress. I think no, no, no. Things have to be this way, or my world is going to. Our world. If you are, if you believe in Jesus, your future is secure. I mean, who knows what's going to happen on this side of death? All kinds of things can happen. You could be imprisoned for your faith. Who knows? You could have a really great, comfortable life. God could bless you, that you could be a blessing. But uh, we know what's on the other side of death, that we will one day rise again. And that is a life without pain, without sadness, without tears, without any of those things. That is secure. And so when someone interrupts my plan for how I'm going to think of myself as a good person, like my kids, I can rest. I can take a deep breath because the pressure is off. I know that in Christ because he rose again that I am secure. My fears and anxieties can be taken away. Uh, my desire to gossip can be eroded by the resurrection, because I no longer worry about, hey, if I can make them look bad, then I'll look better, right? Uh, my my anger, my timidity, my timidity, if I'm worried so much about how others are going to think if I act in this way, you know, I don't have to worry so much. I can do what's important. I can be bold because Jesus rose from the grave. My greed, my lust, all the things, all of those just point to grabbing on for my own kingdom. Like those who are starting, who are establishing Salem, in all of those issues, I see the same elements, the same things going on in my heart. Now, now we can also, because of this, be transparent with our struggles, because at King's Cross, you know, we know that none of us has arrived. None of us is a grace graduate, as Paul Tripp would say. None of us ever gets to the point where we don't need God's radical grace. In fact. As I said before, we just come to know even more and more so that we need His grace. You now, there was a man, I'll, I'll say this, there was a man who, uh, apparently it's a true story, who got a parking ticket for $2 and he didn't pay it. And this was before they could track cars from out of state, right? So he, they didn't have the big database that they have. He apparently carried it with him in his back pocket for 44 years. And then he actually paid it. <laughs> he, like, he, he kept it in his back pocket and then finally just said, "I just can't take it any longer," and he paid it, and he like, paid it with a little bit of interest. I don't know whatever it was. Like, can you imagine the guilt that he felt? A constant reminder, "Oh yeah, I've got this thing that I owe someone. I've got this thing that, that I, I should get rid of, but I just don't want to get around to it. I, I, I don't want to pay I think we all have. All kinds of things. In fact, research shows that we probably have as many as 13 secrets. Uh, There's actually a study. There may be as many as 13 secrets that each of us have on average that we don't want anyone to know. Things we're carrying around in our back pockets. But the cross and the empty tomb means that those are paid for. means that our standing before God is the only standing that matters, and we are clean and righteous in His sight. His blood paid for it. The empty tune proves that we are innocent because he is innocent. Because as we're united with him in his death, we're also united and will be forever united with him in his life. And when this sinks in, we will be among the least offended and most loving people, and the most bold people, I think, and the most gentle people in the world. You know, Jesus is the ultimate Joseph who gave up his legacy for you, he sacrificed his position. Of, of his high position to come down here on earth. He gave up his power to save himself that he could empower us, that he could resurrect us. If you believe in Jesus, you owe God nothing. And if you really understand that, if you really understand that you owe him nothing, that there's nothing that you'll hold back from him. Are you struggling today? He's won your ultimate battle. Are you hurting? Jesus knows suffering. He came out on the other side. Where are you today? Step forward. Come to Jesus and begin to experience what his resurrection can mean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you as the one who gives life, as the one who who loves us to the point of, of coming down to our level. Of becoming one of us, of, uh, Father, your Son really did surrender all that He had, all that He had built, all that He had in heaven, He gave up to be poor, to be among us, to live in the dirt, to live among sick people and poor people and, and all the things that so many of us just don't want to have anything to do with. Father, I pray that your gospel would transform us, your resurrection would transform our lives, not only give us hope, fill us with, but fill us with joy, and that this would overflow out of our lives, into the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.